Hello, and welcome to The Burning Castle, where each week we take a journey with someone who's looking at a world on fire and asking how they can bring their own form of iconoclastic change to make things a little or a lot better. For those who aren't familiar, The Burning Castle is a reference to the original iconoclast Abraham, who sees a burning world and asks if there's no master at home to put out the flames. The response he receives is to go out and become a stronger person so he can create a better world. With your host, Ashley Rinsberg. Hello, and welcome to The Burning Castle. This is your host, Ashley Rinsberg. Today, we'll be talking to Israel-based novelist Effie Rinsky. Effie's latest book, Daughters of January, coincidentally tells the story of 11 sole survivors of an extinction-level pandemic who are trapped on a cargo ship with no landfall in sight. Effie previously published two works of crime fiction. In the interview, Effie and I talk about what it means to be writing creatively in a time of crisis. Check out Daughters of January on Amazon to read a thrilling take on a pandemic that no one, no one except for Effie, that is, saw coming. Just as a reminder, this episode was recorded back when the show was called The Meaning Creators, in case you hear that name pop up in the interview. Now, on to the episode. So, tell us your name. Tell us what you do. So, Effie Rinsky. Rabbis call me Ephraim. My parents call me Ephraim. Readers call you? Easy Rinsky. And just don't call me in the middle of the night. Um, <laughs> you had to get the uh, yeah. zing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a writer. I write, I wouldn't say I'm a mystery writer, even though my first two books are mysteries. So I think I'm a book writer because the next one, I'm not going to write any more mysteries. Like the next thing I'm working on is not a mystery novel. About to are you, are you talking about what it is? Sure. Uh, hold on. Oh! That's, uh, uh, that's some scary stuff. Talking. <laughs> yeah, coughing, coughing's more thriller. scary. It's a coughing thriller. <laughs> yeah, I can talk about it, sure. Okay. Well, we'll get there. Continue uh, on your train of thought. Yeah. We'll come back to that. Sure, sure, sure. So, uh, yeah, I'm a writer, and then I do other stuff, sort of, in my mind, sort of tangential to that. I have a day job uh, at a tech company here in Israel. Well, I'm working uh, a product marketing manager, whatever that means. If I figure it out, I'll let you know. And a musician. I didn't know about the music part. Yeah, too bad it's not audio. I got something going right here. Well, now maybe it will be. We just might have to include the video. I'm not sure about that one. <laughs> yeah, please go. <laughs> okay, so let's. So you are an American in Israel, or maybe an Israeli that used to be an American. And yeah. how did you get here? Why did you get here? And why did you want to be a mystery or whatever you're becoming kind of writer in Israel? I think the two things are kind of unrelated in my mind. Like I moved to Israel. I always kind of knew I wanted to live here. And about four and a half years ago, the timing was really good. Just like my my job in the States, I was, teach, I was uh, teaching economics and statistics at CUNY in New York. And like my contract was running out and I was going to get paid over the summer. Like for not working. How did you get to that as a musician, uh, writer? Yeah, I... Uh, 
Yeah, I originally thought I wanted to be like a, you know, like a banker, one of those assholes. And so I do have a, I have a master's degree in economics um, and finance. And yeah, when I lived in New York and I was writing uh, for five years there, I was teaching statistics and economics at uh, CUNY City University of New York. So the timing was good. And uh, yeah, just a happier person here generally. Why, what made you want to be an asshole banker or finance? Not that, all, not that all bankers. I just had this conversation with a friend of mine, actually, and yeah. saying that a lot of them are because they, they have, feel like they need to fit into this mold of a shark, killer, t- all, you know, take all. And some of them are just so deadly miserable in, in their lives and what they're doing. And yeah. I think there are a, a slim, there's like in everything, a slim layer of people in finance or banking or whatever else that are, that just really love it. They just love what they're doing. And that's why they do it. What was it for you? And what, what got you to that point where you put yourself on an asshole path? So I got really into economics in high school, my senior year of high school. I really like kind of the puzzle solving aspect of like economics and finance. I still do, actually. I've always liked numbers and it's always kind of, I was like, it's always kind of really fun, basically, uh, all that kind of stuff. But it was sort of when, uh, when I realized like what a life, like the natural, then the natural progression of that is like, you know, working in finance or something. And when I realized like what that kind of job is like, it's not like, you know, getting to solve a puzzle all day. Like it's like a, you know, 70 hours cutthroat, cutthroat, Mm -hmm. competitive money, all about money. So yeah, just as I finished that master's, I realized like I really didn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. And And then what was the, what was the transition to writing? Where did that come from? So um, I always kind of was into writing. I wrote for my high school newspaper. I read a lot as a kid, but yeah, I wasn't really very serious. What did you writing. read? What did you like to read? My f- real first love was science fiction. <laughs> Give me some names. Uh, yeah, Asimov was my favorite. I think I'm just looking at my bookshelf right now. See if I remember any of this. If I have any of this stuff, I uh, really you know like Douglas Adams, all the Hitchhiker's Guide books. Still like those. I don't think I understood them the first two times I read them, actually. Definitely didn't. All the Orson Scott Card. Mm. Uh, nice. Margaret Atwood, Arthur C. Clarke, mm-hmm. Robert Heinlein. Uh, were, you ever, were you ever a Crichton fan? No. You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm just not that I'm not. I've never given him a chance. I've never read mm. I, I When I was a kid, when I was like early teens, I was like devotee of Michael Crichton. I thought I just loved his books and... Yeah, I don't know what it was about his writing that I connected so much. I, I even liked some of the stuff that kind of slipped through the cracks, like Disclosure. Where I, and I still think about that book sometimes. That was a book about, it's about like re- reverse sexual harassment in corporate Silicon Valley in the 90s, where the female boss basically pressures her employee who they used to be in a relationship together with. Well, they made a movie out of this, didn't they? Yeah, they made, yes. But yeah, Mike, Michael Crichton, I mean, if you think about Jurassic Park, if you think about The Sphere, I think it was, it was just called Sphere. I mean, that, yeah, yeah. that was a great book. Andromeda Strain, speaking to what we're all going through today. Anyways, I, I always loved him. I never got into Asimov. I loved what I read of Clark. Yeah. But yeah, I, I was also a bit of a, I had a little bit of that 
sci-fi hook. Not, I wasn't total junkie for it, but I was, I was into it. So you were, you were oh. a reader as a kid, reading sci-fi. Yeah. yeah, lots of stuff, but that was like my real passion. But I wasn't serious about writing in any way until I was about, I think I was 22. Mm-hmm. And I think, so I don't want to get into this whole story because like every time, I, every time I've done an interview, like it's become about this. So I'll just mention to you, but... Well, I just, now, we're, now we're going to get into it, so... Yeah, I just... I'll <laughs> you just set yourself up getting into it. Just so you know. I, I just don't find it... It's like kind of like it's like a fun, sticky story, but I don't, okay. don't want to go for it. it again. Is that I was... I was uh, after, after this master's degree... I spent, uh, I had like this quarter life crisis. And mm-hmm. so for like half a year, I was a street performer. Mm-hmm. I was like doing a, I had like a one man band act on the street mm-hmm. where I was in like, uh, I don't know. I always talk about that because that's sort of people enjoy hearing about that. I don't think it's particularly interesting really. Anyway, I think I was reading some book during that. Mm-hmm. I was reading some great books, but I remember I read something that was really crappy, actually. <laughs> and I was like, I could do this. What I, were the great books? The one I was reading, I don't remember which one it was that really, I do remember, actually. I just finished A Confederacy of Dunces. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Like, amazing. Amazing. Actually, I read seven-eighths of it or so, because and then I accidentally put it in the washing machine. I didn't read that, <laughs> but I think I got the idea. Something appropriate about, about that. Yeah. <laughs> Wandering your... <laughs> And then I was reading uh, David Foster Wallace's essays, supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. Mm-hmm. And those were just like, that like really, like some of those just like hit me. There's mm. not emotional, like, they're not so emotional. Yeah. They just thought they're, you know, fucking brilliant. And uh, it was like a combination of that and some other junky book at the time I was reading, which I can't remember. And I was just thinking I could write, like, I could do this. Like I could write a great book about street performing. <laughs> So that was what I tried to do first. And like I sent it out. Like that's when I really decided like I'm gonna do this. So I wrote a manuscript about street performing. What was the story? Okay. So yeah, it was like quasi-memoir, but very exaggerated and really not at all true to life, but with like a lot of kind of tips and anecdotes. And uh that and I moved to New York to like try to, I don't know, get that published. I thought it would help. Eventually it did, but not for quite a long time. So that didn't get published, and I moved to New York from. I was in Boston, and then I was traveling for like eight months, and then I moved to New York. So basically, I wrote. I lived in New York for like five years, and I wrote like three full manuscripts that didn't get published. Still, <laughs> I wrote Palindrome, which was the first one that did get published. Yeah, the street performing thing is the thing I don't find that I, for some reason, I always end up talking about. But let's just leave it out because it's. I feel like it's. We've talked about that before. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of these things are part of the journey. There's episodes that can be, you can put more weight into them, you can put less weight into them and whatever. Yeah. But Palindrome, which I've started to read, it's on my Kindle. I don't, I think it, it was it a preface. It wasn't chapter one, it was a preface, right? Where the woman's on a chair tied up and yeah. something very terrible is about to happen. And that was, it was a white knuckle scene. It was really a gripping moment. So where did it come from? Like, is it a series is the is there a recurring protagonist there? Where's the and are you still connected to that that book? And if it is a series, that series. So there's two books. The first one's called Palindrome. The second one's called The Binding, with the same two protagonists, and they're sort of the second is a continuation of the first. At one time, I had a third one sort of outlined, but sort of at this point, 
I, other stuff interested me and I would write a third one if someone offered me enough money and it'd be fun. But as long as I'm not getting paid, I'm going to write something else. <laughs> Why? Um, well, you just got tired of the series or you? Were the- I mean, I never, I never really liked mystery novels. I've read very few. The only ones I read were sort of in research for this. And the reason that I wrote mysteries was because I realized I got feedback from the manuscripts I got that didn't go anywhere was my main problem was keeping plot and theme consistent throughout, keeping the cadence and sort of making it holistic. So I just really just decided to write a mystery just because it would force me into a certain sort of structure, right? Because like you have to have it outlined from the start the mystery keeps it rigid and so that's really why i decided to do that and then from there i thought well what's the most interesting sort of if i was a detective what's this most interesting sort of question i'd be after i thought well i don't know what happens after we die and then that's sort of that's where that came from but uh yeah i don't i don't have any particular passion for mystery novels i don't uh like a good one, like, a, you know, a great one. I do love some of them. There's one that's uh, called Rosemary. I did read some great ones in sort of in preparation for this and like when I was researching. But um, yeah, overall, it's not like a, it's not like an area I'm passionate about. So where is the, pa- where is your passion in writing and books? I mean, look, don't get me wrong. I really enjoyed writing those two books and was really into it. Yeah. Well, now we, we you'd mentioned that the third book being... The thing you're working on now that's a, a bit of a break from the mystery so where are you looking so i actually have a manuscript more or less complete right now which i just started shopping around which is actually kind of timely <laughs> given all this shit that's going on in the world it's about a pandemic mm-hmm. <laughs> that kills everybody <laughs> that kills that kills everybody except for 11 people who is to survive um, on a cargo ship in the middle of the Atlantic. Wow. Okay. That's a premise. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I imagine people are getting back to you at this point. So I just, I don't know. Some, some people, I got a few kind of nibbles. <laughs> it's funny. Like, you know, six weeks ago, I thought, you know, this is somebody's going to eat this up right away. And now when I think about it, if I was in, in a publisher's shoes, I'd be like, nobody wants to read about this right now. <laughs> That's like the lat. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Well, it's hard to say because I was just talking about this with with a colleague in PR. Uh, we're pitching people, and people are media are really picking up some of our clients who are doing corona related stuff quick. Like we're getting yeah. we're getting people on CNN to comment on this and that. And there's a lot of appetite in media. But we have a client who's a writer, an author, who wrote a memoir. And his memoir is not about a virus, but it is about overcoming something very difficult, which is blindness. And in the course of his struggle to overcome, his mission is to eradicate blindness forever. And in the course of this mission, he actually met with Jonas Salk many, many years ago, the creator of the poem. Jonas Salk? Salk. Oh, so we're we're debating that is there how much appetite we're because his his publisher is pushing him not to move the pub date and he's thinking possibly he should move the pub date because that's the question do people want to read about this do people want to connect to this is this going to drown out everything else what's this going to do and I, i guess the answer is nobody really knows and that's i think that's the interesting point is that with all books 
nobody ever knows. Nobody ever knows when it's, you know, a Donna Tartt book doing really, really well, where her previous book didn't really do well, and then the previous one to that really did well. And no one ever knows when it's some major writer whose book kind of falls with a thud, or some unknown writer that goes completely explosive, viral in the culture. No pun intended. <laughs> yeah. So we only know when the book is out there. That's the only way we'll ever know. And publishers don't know more than we do. They just mm-hmm. they just have to pretend that they do. You know, that's and I think most of them acknowledge it, you know, at least deep down inside, that they're not it's not a science. You know, no matter how much we want to make it one, it's just not. Unless the only only time it's ever a science in this business is when people are doing massive series, series after series after series, and they're just feeding a beast. They're feeding a genre yeah. beast. You can kind of rely on that. Hmm. Anyways, so as an aside, I think what you might consider doing is trying to pitch yourself to media. I don't know how hmm. exactly, but if there is more appetite, then it could be an interesting story about the guy who happened to write the book about a pandemic. I mean, come on, that's man bites dog, you know? And the other thing would be, I think an excerpt. If you can excerpt, do an excerpt quickly. That would help that. An excerpt in an op-ed. And what you, Hmm. you, over the course of writing this book, you've probably thought about pandemics more than 95, 98% of people, 99% of people. So you have a unique perspective and, you know, you talk about what you learned from the book from your own book, from the thought experiment that the book is. It's pretty good. It's good. Because I was thinking, you know, like, it makes sense that nonfiction is, people are eating it up. But fiction, I'm just myself, I would just want to escape into anything. But, you know, what the angle you're talking about makes sense. Yeah, but actually, I don't know where I read this. I'll try to hunt it down. But what I read is that people are buying more fiction right now than nonfiction. They're not actually jumping into the nonfiction. They Mm -hmm. want fiction. And I don't know if that means they want virus-related fiction. I definitely have seen, you know, the movies pop up on Netflix. They're being pushed, Contagion and Outbreak and whatever. And I think people want to know that it's going to be okay. They want to know that they want to put some distance between themselves and the thing by putting it into fiction. So they can Mm -hmm. read about this as fiction. It's almost like they can pretend the real thing is a bit fiction as well, which it... It kind of is in a way. I mean, <laughs> it's not, and it is. And that's the, that's the crazy part of it. Because when I look out my, I took my kids for a walk today in the fields behind our house. And it was like the most idyllic, peaceful day. You know, yeah. we came home and had a wonderful lunch and they had a nap and I did my work and all good. You know what I mean? And the pandemic that's occurring in the world for me personally right now, and hopefully it'll remain that way, is a fiction. And that, that's that dynamic between really good fiction and reality is that really good fiction also has like a claim on our reality too. There's a bit of reality in the fiction and there's a bit of fiction in our lives. And what I'm saying is not anything new. I'm sure, you know, this is a pretty well thought through idea, but in your case, it's kind of more real, so to speak. You've actually, you've actually written a piece of fiction at a time where the reality is catching up. Maybe I should should reach out to some media tomorrow. It's an interesting idea. In other words, that that is what the client that I was talking about, the publishing client, whose name is Sandy Greenberg. The professional bottom line that we came to is that no matter what what date he publishes, June or September, the important thing is to lean into it right now. And I would say the same for you. Lean into right. the marketing of it before the publishing. Okay. Yeah, I do have some contacts. 
you know, obviously it's a fine line between trying to uh, take advantage of this of the situation, but whatever. Friday, I'm already. It's life. I'm already short. You know what I mean? You what? I've, I've been shorting the market for two months, so I guess this oh, isn't okay. any more. Good for you. No, I would say less. Yeah. <laughs> Could you help me short the market next? Because I have no fucking idea how to do that. Yeah, I guess I could most gotten out of that finance degree. Right. Long time. Right. So the book, as much as you can talk about it or want to talk about it, 11 people on a cargo ship, the world has been wiped out. Everyone's effectively dead. Okay. Yeah. Now what? what? In terms of the book, how do you move that from there to anywhere else? Yeah. So... The idea is that it was wiped out sort of deliberately by an organization, sort of eco-terrorists or something, or you could call them something like that, who felt like we just, the world was just like, was just fucked up beyond repair. Humanity. And uh, humanity, and so we needed a, another chance. Right. Kind of a Noah's Ark story. Right. A bit of a 12 monkeys well, thing as well. Yeah. So the people on the ship do have sort of some possibility of survival. And the real story is like, okay, so they've got a second chance. What are they? What does that look like? Because they've all got all this baggage that they took from the old world with them. So they're all sort of like tainted with all that, um, mm-hmm. with all that stuff, and they're going to carry it with them. And so maybe they can't really start over. And why the number eleven? I wish there was more significance to it that I could explain. I think it just sort of like I got listed all the characters that I wanted on there, and, and that's how it came out. It sounds like a lot, up, a lot to manage, a lot of characters to manage. I mean, it's a big cast. It is a lot. It is. That was the hardest part about writing this book. Palindrome and The Binding are both first person. Mm-hmm. And this is 11, basically 11 protagonists. And it's going back, you know, each one's from one of their points of view. Uh, so you get inside there, each one of them has, I don't know, five or six scenes or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, it was, uh, it's uh, tricky, but at the same time, it's also nobody except for those people. So, mm-hmm. and it, the Noah's Ark metaphor was it deliberate or was it just a product of the premise? There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of deliberate biblical allusions. Actually, the Noah's Ark one is maybe among the less of the ones that I was going for. It just sort of it's it's sort of unavoidable. But the other the bigger questions, the bigger, bigger issues around religion in the book are like if religion's one of the things that we should leave behind or keep going. Interesting. What's the name? Uh, it's called Daughters of January. Mm-hmm. It's the name of the terrorist group. Nice. Very cool. Good name. So let's come farther back in the conversation where we started about being in Israel and you, you'd said that life is better for you here. How so? Why so? I mean, I don't, I don't have anything too, like too interesting to say about that. Just, um, say the boring stuff. What's that? Say the boring stuff. Yeah. I feel like I'm happier here. Like the quality of life is generally better. Work-life balance is better. My parents live here. They may moved here two years before me. I know with a lot of my insistence because right. I knew I'd be moving here eventually. Right. I think, I, I mean, I know this is true for all people. I know it's true for me that my mindset's very much a product of wherever I happen to be in terms of priorities. And when I lived in New York, it was really hard to get out of the sort of climbing mentality in every facet, you know, professionally, socially, financially. And here I feel like that's very much less of the culture. And so it's less part of me. 
and um mm-hmm. and i like that a lot um, yeah. yeah it's um it's like an orientation thing like um i think kafka talked about that the having a vertical orientation in life where the vertically oriented want to be up so that they can look down mm. whereas a horizontally oriented which which in a way a horizontally oriented life is much more biblical because you're looking out over not standing at one point in time up and down you're looking out out over an expanse of time that that stretches deep into the past and with the you know the flood in a way is the same thing because the flood eradicated all verticality to make everything horizontal. So the mabula was horizontalization of of life because you know when you think about ego raises us up like just like that vertical orientation so that we can look down on others we can look down from our perch and that was possibly the issue with the generation Noah's generation is that putting of the self before all else and that's when i think about what's happening today if you can read into it any kind of i won't say moral it sounds a little puritanical but when you think about the golden calf of our generation it's buying lots of shit that's we worship the god of shit of crap junk and we borrow to buy more junk and we we buy things we don't need and we spend more money on each thing that we have to spend because it makes us feel good and that individual how i feel becomes more important than anything else in our existence today and that's the culture we live in and when people complain about politics in america i think it's less so in israel but it's still the case here I kind of think to myself, what did you expect? I mean, you've created this. You, individual person, have created this. Oh. That's my, that's my, uh, my spiel, my Jeremiah. Yeah, I've been thinking about, I mean, the situation is terrifying, but it's also really elucidated a lot of things. It's made a lot of very abstract things, very concrete yeah like you know the trade-offs between you know freedom and you know, sort of between you know no government control and total government control yeah like we're all isolating and right now i think we all agree it makes sense to save lives but then at some point you know obviously none of us would be okay isolating for five years to save lives right because that's you know that is also our life that we're yeah. sort of working. so yeah. You know, and like in economics, there's this, there's this, you know, I'm sure you've heard of this. There's like, you know, every like public health organization or economic think tank has to come up with the monetary value of a human life. Right. You know, often quite abstract, but, yeah. you know, in this case, it's like a real value. Like we're trading and having an economic trade off for, for a health, right. for health reasons. But then what's, I mean, what's, what's the, how do you compare the two? You know, right. what's the, what's the cost of somebody losing their job? How many people lose their job is worth one death. And like, these are like real, it's pretty crazy that this is like, I mean, you know, if we had a competent leader of the free world, he'd, they'd be grappling with this stuff. Probably don't, but you know, as individuals, it's, it's these like real, like philosophical debates have suddenly come home. Like, do I walk out to get a cup of coffee? Is the cost of my mental health worth the, I don't know, infinitesimal chance of killing someone? Right. What's the risk of me leaving my house on a normal day? You know, is this more significant than that? 
Yeah, I mean, we all drive to work every day, or a lot of right. us do, and that's um, that's the biggest risk we'll take in, most of us in our in our lives statistically, For and sure. we don't think twice about doing it. I mean, some of us do think twice, but but most of us don't. And and a lot of other scenarios, such as what's the relative value of a life according to an age of a person? Is yeah. a, is a two year old's life more valuable than a ninety year old's, or sixty year olds? And what if the sixty year old is a cancer researcher? On and on and on, and all of a sudden, those those um, you know the the thought experiment of the trolley that's off its tracks right. or lost the brakes or whatever has become horrifyingly real. On the one hand, on the hand, when you 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 know it, Italy, I just saw is not giving ventilators to people over sixty. I saw if that. I saw that. If that's true, if that's true, they are reaching a completely new phase of this whole nightmare because that's you're condemning the people to die. If they need to be on a ventilator and they can't be on one, they will, they will just die. But on the other hand, there are people who also need those ventilators who are not 60 and whose chances to live are greater. So how do you make that decision? And I don't know. And that's why when I think as a religious person, when I think about the Torah and the sanctity of life as to say, this is a, you know, I was listening to a Elon Musk video. Where he talks about prime principles. Don't think by analogy. Think by think according to prime prime or fundamental principles. And mm-hmm. in that case, the fundamental of the fundamental principles is life, the sanctity of human life, the value of human life, regardless of production or productivity or anything else. But still, the decisions have to be made. It doesn't skirt anything. That's the hard part. That's where it's the snag. We can all talk about sanctity of human life, but the doctors actually have to decide who's going to get it. Yeah, I don't want to, I don't, this probably sounds like very, this sounds like an enormous amount of hubris, what I'm about to say. But I think I have a streak for the fatalistic. You know, it's kind of why I'm into writing dystopian stuff. Yeah. And I sort of, you know, like they say, like, like I've predicted like 10 of the last three catastrophes. Hmm. And this one just finally happens to this finally happens to be something that's aligning with my, with, with my expectation of the worst case scenario. I feel like I've, I feel like I've finally, you nailed this I've, one. I finally forecasted this accurately. And I feel like I've been a, a week or two ahead of where this is going at every turn. Again, yeah. it sounds like a enormous amount of hubris. I just feel like this, this particular situation. I don't think it's hubris. I think it's people who live with a certain mindset, a, a certain kind of, it's an anxiety, I think, speaking for myself, an, an angst. When yeah. you get used to living with angst for a long, long time, you start to see how things can unfold. And that becomes an expectation inside you. Again, speaking for myself. So when this all started, I was, and I'm talking about in like, I don't know when it was, Fe- early February, definitely. I was telling my wife, Jane, when you go to the grocery store, buy extra gloves, buy extra food. But, you know, two months ago, and she she wasn't really taking it that seriously. Not many people were. But someone who is also kind of a high anxiety. And I noticed this, I noticed this pattern that people who live with anxiety, when a crisis emerges, they become calm relative to the rest of the society <laughs> because they're used to the feeling that's funny yeah and that it doesn't feel that different from daily life and maybe it's a little bit the volume's a little turned up 
But um, I, I noticed I was once stuck in a coup in Honduras and it was bad and I was in the wrong place for that to happen. Stuck in a 24 hour a day, all day long curfew. You could not leave the hotel. And the, the, the coup was happening on our street because it was a neighborhood where all the diplomats were. And I'd never felt so calm. I never felt so, I went onto the balcony. There was like shooting down there tear gas. And I meditated out there in a completely distraction-free mode of, of mind. And I think that's what it is. I think that certain people get used to that feeling and mm. they learn how to think it through because they're comforting themselves by thinking it through in a day-to-day scenario, uh-huh. which is not to say that's what it is for you. I just don't necessarily think that it's hubris. But before we wrap this up, because I know it's been longer than we said, the question that I really want to ask you is, what does it mean to you to be a writer at all? What does it mean to you to be writing apocalyptic work or mystery or whatever comes after this book? What does it mean to you? And what do you think it means to the people around you and to your readers? For me, it's, it's almost like eating or drinking or like using the bathroom. Like it's just, it's a part of my daily life, which I have to have. If I miss a day of writing, like I'm in a foul mood all day. That's like at the basic level. It's like I've been doing this. I've been having like a basically I've been on a routine for so long of six, six mornings a week of writing. That's why my day exists. Mm-hmm. Right. I think I originally, if I had to guess like why I do this so compulsively, I think in, in, I think in one way it's a form of self-therapy. Like, you know, it's not, it's not, I'm not writing anything which is remotely therapeutic, but, but, you know, I, I, it's getting your imagination, like your, uh, how can I say this accurately? I'm sure you, I'm sure this sounds familiar to you as a writer as well, but sort of accurately portraying like the things that are in your head is like a deeply uh, cathartic experience, which is, yeah, my, my, my dad, who's, who's, you know, fairly religious would say that you're sort of becoming a vessel for the, just sort of like channeling like uh, godliness or spirit right through you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's sort of an ecstatic experience when you get it right. And maybe that's how it started. And this point, I've gotten so used to it that it's become like, it's just like, it's not like I get up and I'm like, uh, well, should I write today or not? It's just like such, it's like, I don't think about it. Like, it's just an absolute necessity for me. Mm-hmm what it means for people around me. I don't know. I think I know people like my books. I don't think if I'm being objective, I think, I think that people really enjoyed and had a lot of fun reading my first two books, but I don't think it's, I doubt and maybe they, maybe they thought about it for a bit after, but I don't think either of them were like kind of books that people were like, Hey, that changed my life. Like that's, I don't have any illusions about that. I think they were mostly fun. Is that the kind of book you want to write at some point? Is that important to you? Um, Do you want to hear those words? <laughs> um, that's a good question. If I could hear people say anything when they were describing a book of mine, I think, and they, I think probably what I'm going for more is like, hey, you made me think about something really interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I would want to make people say that and probably need a couple hours of, with, with a trained therapist to get to the root of what I really want people to say when I, when they read one of my books. But um, I want them to say, Hey, you made me think about something interesting. Maybe it affected me. I don't know. It was funny. I definitely want them to say it was funny. Mm-hmm. Even these mystery books, I find them to be very funny. A lot of people mm-hmm. think they're scary 
my mom thinks they're scary, but I find them, I thought they were kind of funny. I'm not sure what it means to my readers. I don't think, I think they, people enjoy it, but I don't think it, I don't know. And I could be selling myself sore, but I don't think so. I don't think it, I don't think it means so much to them, at least what I've done so far. I'm shocked that I became a person who people are surprised at their discipline. Mm-hmm. I still consider myself a disciplined person because frankly, outside of writing, I'm probably one of the least disciplined people I know and can't even keep my kitchen clean. <laughs> uh, and it's funny that, and I, cause I've heard this a lot of people are like, wow, I wish I could have your discipline. And that's, so that means something to people around me, even though it's the most, to me, it's like the most ludicrous. It's like I use up all my discipline on this. I don't have any leftover for anything. Well, they're saying something. You're, it's like you're speaking two different languages. They're saying, I wish you could have your discipline, but you're saying you mean you wish you could have my obsession because that's really what, when you build your life around one thing, that's an obsession, which it's not a bad thing. I think that's, if you know David Goggins, he's an ultra endurance athlete. He was a Navy SEAL and did a lot of crazy stuff in his life. And he talks about motivation. He says, motivation's crap. If you are using motivation to do something hard, you will fail because the motivation will run out. You have to be obsessed. If you're obsessed, if you build your life around it, then you can keep going no matter what happens. The flip side is you pay a cost. There's a price, just like there's a price for everything else. But so I think that's what people, they hear that. They hear that you wake up. They hear that you do it six days a week. It sounds like for you, you're just satisfying your crazy desire that like you have, like you're saying, it's a, it's like a drug dependency, you know, intellectual dependency. I think that's the strength, but I think it's also, it requires balance because otherwise it consumes. Sure. Yeah. I hear that. Yeah. I have a quite addictive personality. Mm-hmm. Like could have easily been something other than writing. Could have easily, yeah. I mean, I'm pretty, I get pretty into gambling, so could have <laughs> sort of challenging. We're, we're just watching un- uncut gems. Speaking of, gambling. oh, I love that. I love halfway, that. We're halfway through. It's really great. It's really great. I love that. God, he's incredible, huh? Yeah, he's amazing. He's amazing. I always thought so, though. Always thought so. I mean, since Punch Drunk Love. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, it was like that guy can act like crazy, and then he does these insanely dumb movies where you can't believe how stupid they are. But I, I never liked his comedy. I I always hated his comedy. I mean, the, I think there are a couple winners. Most of it is ridiculous. That Al Pacino movie was like, I I just feel like he's not laughing with us. With the he's laughing at us. He's laughing at people who go to watch that. I, that's my theory. <laughs> like, there's no other explanation. <laughs> They're making something that bad. He's just making fun of you for being an idiot. <laughs> uh, that's good. But um, this is great. We've gone half an hour over our time that, I, that I'd that i mentioned. So I'm sure you've got other things going on, like shorting the markets and uh, getting ready. Markets for are closed, man. Sunday's the perfect day. Are closed, right? <laughs> nothing yeah, to short, nothing time. to do. Think about the best time to do this. Yeah. Like I could, there's no way I could have plausibly said, uh, yeah, I really can't make it today. Right. I nailed you. <laughs> got you in that corner. You know, <laughs> really, really, yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's a real pleasure. If you are looking for other ideas about how to kind of build a little heat around the next, this book, Routers to January, um, Media Heat, Friction, I can help you think about that, some other tactics. I I am. I think I told you last time we met, I'm just terrible at this stuff. Everybody is terrible at this stuff. And even the professionals like myself, who this is what I do for a living. And when it comes to doing it for myself, I I can't, I couldn't. Mm. Someone's doing it for me. Like someone's being my uh, accountability buddy. So uh, that's just how it is. Who hires you? Publishing houses hire you to promote their, um, their It depends who it is. If it's, a, if it's a really big book, then yeah, it's the publisher. That's very rare because that means it's, it's expensive. I mean, we're, we charge a lot of money and publishers are only going to put that into their A-list books. Mm-hmm. Books that they've already put down a huge advance on because they want to get their money back. Otherwise, it's the authors who do it which is also kind of a, you know, the ones that do it are, I admire them because they're really putting their money where their mouth is, literally. Like self-published books? They have um, a publisher? Right now, there's someone who's got a publisher. It's not a huge publisher. There's there is a self-published author. We've had self-published authors in the past. We've had authors that are using, you know, Scribe Media? It sounds very cool. Scribe, it's uh, Tucker Max's uh, oh. book writing company. So someone who's done that, she's a very big, well-known businesswoman that she went down that route. All sorts of stuff. People coming to us from the book world. However, the one caveat is no fiction. I've never, we've never done any fiction ever. We don't, we really wouldn't even know how to put our hands around it as an agency. It's a totally mm-hmm. different beast, even though a lot of the tactics I imagine would be similar, but I think it's a blind spot for us. And I think there's a lot out there and a lot of people, it's a blind spot for everybody because no one knows how to sell fiction really. I mean, people kind of guess. I think it's a fascinating topic. And I, I would, as someone you're dealing as, with numbers and, and finance and economics, I mean, that's an, it's a separate question. We can talk about it some other time, but the economics of publishing today, I think it's interesting because it's not, it's not black and white. It's not, oh, there's no money. There's no market. There's nothing. It, that's no longer, we can't say that anymore. That's a cop out because there's the yeah. internet and there's millions and millions of people and, and millions of readers and everyone, you just need a little piece of the pie. So that's interesting. Yeah. I floated around the idea of self-publishing this book. Uh, yeah, well, you got it's at that question. It's the, to me, it's about framing it. You got to think, why am I doing it? Am I doing it for fame, fortune or freedom? If you're doing it for right. if you're doing it for money, self-publishing might be more worth your while, unless you're getting a big deal, a really big deal, from a publisher. Because yeah. if you can find a way to push a book out, and you're keeping a bigger share of the, of the revenue per book, you know, it could work in your favor. So, but again, no one knows. <laughs> yeah, I just feel like. Um... Yeah, I feel like the, the publishing industry is one of these dinosaurs that's like crusted up and like just nobody's put it out of its misery yet. Like it's, it's just like uh, they've outgrown their use. Totally. Yeah. They are they're like the record industry was 10 years ago. You know, like kind of holding on to an old model, desperate to hold on to that legacy and those story, the, all the storytelling that they tell themselves about who they are and what they do not able to really think about what the new model is and just kind of hunkering down in in their prestige you know and even that's kind of gone like no one really gives a shit anymore about penguin viking this that night who knows what that means except it with 
tiny world. Like if you're in yep. that bubble, then you know. And if you're not in that bubble, you don't know. You don't care. It's true. You know, the, the other thing that we didn't quite, I think the next step of talking about what's the cost of a human life is while you're sitting here, you know, in your fucking sweatpants for days on end. And the next logical question is, so what's my life worth? Yeah, that's true. That's a good what, point. What is, what is this day worth? You know, yep. what's waiting, you know, waiting on my waiting on my ass for somebody else to publish something of my worth? How's your yeah. how, how's, how's yours going, by the way? Um, well, it's since the draft that I sent to you, I actually started to rewrite it. Yeah. Well, it, it's an edit. Like it was, I, it was like a style edit. And what okay. was that? I shaved off twenty thousand words from the hundred actually more. So wow. I'm finishing up that now and I'm, I'm very happy I did it because to get rid of that kind of clutter is amazing and still, and have a story strengthened on a, on account of it. So, mm-hmm. so I've reached out to agents. I've started that process and, but when I restart that process, I'm going to do it a little bit more along the lines of what I was just suggesting to you. I don't want to go in naked. I don't want to go to an agent naked be like, here's, you know, open the robe and here's my book and hope that they're not going to think I'm a pervert. I want to go and be like, check out my fancy suit. You know what I mean? I think that's, that's the only way. And that's the thing that I've started to understand is that art is about context and you can't escape that. You can't, I'm thinking, you know, Grimes, you know, she is. Yeah. She's like a pop artist. You hear the music and you're like, everyone talks about Grimes is amazing. And then you hear the music, you're like, oh, okay, it's pop music. It's really poppy. But when you look at the context, when you look at this self-made kind of dark artsy thing, then it's got an edge, then it's got a charge. Mm. And I think that's what it's about. When you, when you want to connect with an audience, you have to connect them to, an, to some kind of alter ego. Even if your alter ego looks just like you, talks just like you, but there has to be some twist. And that's probably why you're talking so much about being a street performer, because that's a twist. You know what mm. I mean? No, there's yeah. no man bites dog in a guy writing in a room in his pajamas. That's not, okay, maybe you write a great book. It's even still, you got to have a compelling story for someone to pick it up and to tell somebody else about. And I think that's, that's, the key to selling books today where in maybe 50 years ago Saul Bellow or whoever even then though when you think about Philip Roth he was the naughty boy the not the dirty naughty boy of the Jewish world of the nice Jewish world you know what I mean you have a book I never liked Pornoy's Complaint I never thought it was anything great I never found it readable that's the only one of us I really like I I personally never connected but nevertheless did it warrant like in a huge explosion in the literary world, the Jewish literature? No, of course not. What it did was he was just, he was trampling sacred cows, you know, and that's, he put the context into the book. That's what he did. That was the beauty of that book, building context into the work. And that's what it's about to me and why you've, you've got something on your hands because you've got context right now with this. Mm-hmm. You just got to find out how to tell it. You got to find out how to communicate it to the world and what world to communicate it to that's that's the challenge at the moment for you which is a good challenge you got the wood you got the fuel you just got to figure out what's the kindling you know and how to get strict the match yeah. i thought about i don't remember if you remember telling me this but it's actually resonated with me a lot since we met for uh lunch when you said you just got to get in front of ten thousand people and then you can tell if it's good enough that's, you just gotta get in front of yeah, people. that's I think that's all that is true. 
And if you can get in front of 10,000 people, you've done your job as a marketer of your own work. However, getting it in front of 10,000 people, I think is, is more easily effectively done if you're telling them a story about yourself. For sure. Through the work. Sure. You know what I mean? Like you're, the story's about you and the work is the kind of hors d'oeuvres. Not the other way around. <laughs> that, that's the flip. That's the mind. Because you're more than one work. You're more than one book. You're a whole over of works and it'll progress yeah. over time. It'll, it'll change over time. That's what you've got to be telling the story about. And then you're not just writing books either. You're doing a lot of both. So try to understand the story, that story about yourself. And, then, and in, in this case, you can just start telling it tomorrow. That's what I would do. I would be like, this is fucking burning under your ass, you know? If you're telling a story, I didn't mean to write a a pandemic book at the same time there was going to be a pandemic. It just fucking happened. That's crazy. It's like, people are like, okay, that is crazy. That's weird. Yeah, this is the time. This is it. I got time. I'll I'll turn it over. Yeah, do that. And the other thing that you can do and I can do is think about how we can bring people together in our own little mini scene that doesn't exist in Israel, to my knowledge, of English language fiction writers in Israel. That helps because that gets things, juices flowing, people connected, people helping each other. So we can think about that. Maybe, you know, I was going to suggest us doing a meetup in Tel Aviv. That's not happening for the foreseeable future. But we can maybe do a digital meetup. You know, this might be a great time for that. I'm down. I think I told you, you're the only other person... English writer that I know, I think, in, uh, well, yeah, like the only one I would want to be in a group with. <laughs> we got a club of two. Yeah. God forbid one of us should leave. But if, let's think about how we can make it happen. We can find, I know a couple other people. We can just get on a t- chat and just have a conversation on Zoom. It's yeah. like the easiest thing. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right, man. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, head over to theburningcastle.com to gain access to all interviews and tweet us at Burning Castle if you have feedback on this week's episode. Be sure to tune in for the next episode.